Hello and welcome to the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, brought to you by Breakthrough Health and Wellness. I'm Luke Blattman, joined today by Daniel Blattman and Brock Schaefer, and we're looking at the two Super Touring Bathurst 1000s, the 1997 and 1998 AMP backed events, held both years on the traditional New South Wales Labor Day long weekend. It's nearly 25 years since these races took place, and we'll start with what first comes to mind when we initially remember these races. Brock, you were pretty young at the time, but you've got one up over both of us. You were actually at the 1998 event. I was. And uh, my only memory of... Actually, I have two memories. One is of a dude that had um, one of those ride-on lawnmowers with an SD on it. <laughs> um, and my other memories, it was Ingle and... You'd know, Luke, it was Murph Lowndes crashed at the S's. Tim Harvey. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's that's my only two memories from it. But I was there, and I remember the crash very vividly. Very exciting. Well, at least, at least you've got one of the um, staples of Bathurst etched in your memory, which is the ride on lawnmowers. Yeah, there were heaps of them, but there's just one that, that sticks out because it had this really, like, dodgy um holden dealer team livery on it and uh it's just stuck with me i don't know if it stuck with me because it was that awful but it had smoke blowing out of it it was it was a real it wasn't like one of the high-end sort of ride on eskies and you were on the scene of what was pretty much not the turning point of the race but probably the pivotal moment of the 98 race yeah well i mean i didn't know that at the time i was <laughs> no. sitting there watching the cars go past and I remember this car came over the hill down the S's and it had like all this fluid pouring out the front of it. I can't remember if it was damaged or not. And the the whole road was covered in stuff. And then, uh, yeah, the next two cars that came over, obviously went through the sand trap that is no longer there and uh, yeah. straight into the wall. Where's uh, where's the time gone, Daniel? To you know, it's um, watching these races back was actually quite emotional thinking the amount of time that's actually um, passed in that time. Yeah, 25 years since uh, the 97 race. Well, yeah, just, just 24. tick under. Yeah, just tick yeah. under. But, yeah, no, incredible. Um, but still, it, both both races stack up very well in particular. Well, I wasn't the same particular 97 race, but that's not fair on the 98 race. Two very different races, but both, um, yeah, stand the test of time, almost 25 years on. Yeah. Very competitive in in two different ways. Like the 1997 mm. race was um, a bit more of a, a bit more of an uh, tortoise and hare endurance race, whereas the 98 race was just um, the two the two cars in the front row just going flat out for six and a bit hours. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's and both like I still can't split them. Like obviously the 98 race. Um, held the closest, well, one of the closest finishes for, um, well, still to this day kind of thing. So that stands out. But, yeah, there is something about that 97 race. And then you think of all the might of the European teams and the, you know, big, big um, drivers and names that came out. And then there were two Australian teams, the BMW and the Audi team, um, left standing after five hours and 45 minutes. Well, the, these races stir up a lot of mixed and varied emotions um, from a lot of parties, both at the time and still now. And we, we want to keep the politics out of this podcast as much as we can. That can be all be for another time. But we want we want to sort of discuss these races for the great endurance races they were in their own right. 
but naturally in some cases it'll be unavoidable to touch on some of the politics that went on at the time and i think it's i think it's important to at least explain as simply as possible how how it came to be that super tourers raced in the 1997 bathurst 1000 so in 1996 we had the amp bathurst 1000 run since run since 1963 on the new south wales labor day long weekend originally as a 500 mile race and organized and run in 1996 by the consortium comprising the Australian Racing Drivers Club, Channel 7, and the Bathurst City Council. We also then, of course, had the, the five-litre V8 touring cars, who had no, had no ownership interest in the Bathurst 1000, and uh, were invited to compete, which they did as always, and as they had done in previous years. And the 1996 race was televised by Channel 7. The 5-litre V8s then came under a new management structure for 1997, which included a fresh category name, V8 Supercars, and this new structure was immediately at odds with the Bathurst 1000 organisers, both over prize money and, more importantly, TV rights, as V8 Supercars did a deal with Channel 10 for 1997, which included televising Bathurst. The problem here was the Bathurst TV rights, of course, weren't V8 Supercars to sell. Channel 7 was a part owner of the Bathurst 1000, had televised every Bathurst 500 or 1000 since 1963, and had a contract to televise the Bathurst 1000 until 2004. For various reasons, no compromise could be reached, and V8 Supercars ended up putting together their own deal with the Bathurst City Council to hold their own new event at Bathurst later in 97, leaving the traditional Bathurst 1000 event to put together a deal which the consortium had been teeing up in the background while, constant, while compromise talks were happening in case they failed, with the international super touring category to headline the then 34-year-old Labor Day long weekend event. Super tourers weren't new to the mountain, though. They'd competed as a class in the 1993 and 94 Bathurst 1000s alongside the V8s and had a pair of support races at the 96 Bathurst 1000 and a local standalone Super Touring Championship had also been held in Australia since 1994. So theoretically, there was a local base to build an entry from. But straight away, the international appeal and the prospect of the European cars and teams coming to Australia to compete was the focus. I guess the international angle is something we're familiar with these days with the 12-hour, Daniel. Yeah, exactly. I think when you, and one of the things that definitely caught me with this race was it was a bit of a throwback to the 1987 um world touring car championship round um that doubled as a bathurst 1000 and then as you said you fought fast forward to 2002 2003 with 24 hours and then obviously now um what we've got with the 12 hour so it's, it's funny how this does come in uh cycles the international flair and flavor um of enduring race endurance racing at Mount Panorama. Yeah, and there was good, like genuine good interest from international teams and drivers at the idea right from the, at the idea of competing in the race right from the start. Yeah, when you look at the, like as you said before, that in particular the 97 race, when you look at the British Touring Cars, which was a benchmark Touring Car Championship in the world at the time, Williams Engineering, um, obviously dominating the 97 championship, but they were here. You had the Peugeot teams, you had the Vauxhall teams, might have been W, Audi, um, you know, sending drivers like Frank Baylor, Frank Biela as well. It was, uh, yeah, quality uh, from top to bottom. 
Well, that's that's the equivalent, Brock, these days of if at the 12 hour when we get teams like Manti or WRT coming over. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of that. I think um, I think you know it's our it's our biggest sort of track. It's our best track, and when when we do get international teams come over and tackle it for any event, for me those events always sort of stand out in history. So like '87, obviously everyone knows because I mean you know of what happened with the result, but also it just had a different flavour to it. And that flavour of the international guys coming over, I really like, which I think is why um, the 12-hour has such an appeal to me and so many people. I was going to say, too, I was, I was actually even racking my brain today to figure out who didn't come over, like in terms yeah. of the European teams. And what's Ford? I reckon that was a yeah. missed opportunity, and maybe we'll touch on it later, but that still surprised me, just thinking the presence they had in Australia. I would have thought that had been a no-brainer tie-up. Um, and then obviously the 98 race, Nissan threw a semi, you know, kind of semi-factory or privately supported. Primera was pretty competitive, but as well with the Australian um, pedigree of Nissan's of Australia, I'm surprised they didn't jump on that more thoroughly. When the event was initially announced, actually, um, Ford were amongst one of the early teams to canvas a bit of interest, but obviously it came to nothing. Um, ProDrive with a Honda were also a team that were interested in coming initially. That would have been good. Jimmy the Rocket James Thompson um, around here, that would have been worthwhile. And that, those Accords, that, oh, in particular that 98 Honda Accord was sensational. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's a missed opportunity. But to get, I mean, well, to get Williams, who actually were a team that initially weren't, initially weren't interested in coming over, was Mapati Airlines were the ones that got them over the line, I believe. Yeah, and ANZ. Well, and ANZ. And Graham Moore, actually. I think yeah, he yeah. was the difference. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think mostly he was the, he was the, um, the deal maker. <laughs> but, yeah, like, to think at the time, um, the best Formula 1 team in the world, obviously running their uh, British touring car team, and, like, domination is an understatement for what they did in that 97 97- British Touring Car Championship, and at least for 100 laps, of 161 laps, dominated the uh, Bathurst 1000. Well, if you look at some of the quality of the drivers who competed in that in the 97 race, in the 98 race, you had, um, in the 97 event, four of the last six British Touring Car champion, champions were racing. The only two missing were um, were Winklehock and Gabriele Tarquini. But you also you had F1 drivers in the 97 race, Derek Warwick, Julian Bailey and Alan Jones. You also had Derek Warwick and Jeff Brabham, who by that time was a local competitor. But they were Le Mans winners, so it was quite a pedigree of driver. And the great Jean Homrule, the Belgian ace. Jean-Francois Homrule. Yeah, there you go. I missed it. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounded too short. But yeah. yes, <laughs> the Belgian gun um he was the lawrence van the lawrence van thor before lawrence van thor was a thing to be honest at at the time and i appreciate it obviously now in particular watching the race back but at the time i didn't give enough credit or you know emphasis to the point of alan jones driving for williams 17 years um after their world championship like at the time like i don't mean 
being so young, you don't fully appreciate it. I probably, I would have known he was a world champion then, but he, he wouldn't have been much more to me than the guy who fronted the Channel 9 broadcast. But now when I look back on it, that was actually quite a mon- momentous occasion for him to be reunited um, driving that. So, yeah, that's that's something I really, second time round, um, had greater significance than I gave it at the time. I um, were, were My earliest memories of... Um Australian touring car racing is the Group A era. And the first Bathurst I sort of remember is 1987 with um, the World Touring Car Round. So I was sort of accustomed as a kid to um, European drivers and cars coming out. And not 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 that I really overly missed it during the early 90s, towards the mid-90s, you know, I loved Bathurst as much as always. But when the Super Touring race was announced... Um, I was pretty excited to the the fact that some international teams and drivers could come over with their own cars and be able to be on the pace straight away. Yeah, and I think that was the telling thing. They they're on the pace, but they're also setting the pace. What was Alan Menu? It took him four laps or something, which is yeah, scary. Yeah. Three or four, yeah, yeah, and set set the fastest Just, time. Yeah, yeah, and that and then. Obviously, we'll get to it later, but what Plato did uh, as well as, you know, that was his rookie season in these cars. So just on a a tangent, though, Luke, as well, in terms of when you ask 24 years on, what do we remember about these events? Yeah. Dwayne Bewley pushing his Peugeot 405 over the finish line and then collapsing and then yeah. later be disqualified, is one of the biggest travesties of motorsport in this country. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess rules are rules, but that was that was an emotion charge finish to the race. I mean, everyone was willing him to get that over the line. Yeah, there's, like, the crowd absolutely cheering him on, him having two and three goes, trying to steady himself. I think you think after six hours worth of driving for him to be doing that to get there, uh, great coverage for fastway couriers as well. So, yeah, kids, if you don't know what we're talking about, punch that into Google or in YouTube and uh, some of the best three minutes of your life that takes a guy to travel about 15 metres. <laughs> well, he had to push it a fair way. It was up the hill like, too. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't as if uh, it was a um, – it was quite an effort. And I, th- I, th- I think I think the officials waving the flag probably knew it was um, – he was going to get disqualified because, I mean, the, the the nose of the car only just about gets to the line, and then they then they flag him. And yeah. in fact, he, he like he collapses straight away, and lucky the car doesn't almost go for him actually. Yeah, yeah. There's there's actually tow trucks and things that are like just steaming past him as well. So good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, that 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 well, of course, that was a local car um, that competed in the '97 race, and the. There was a good bunch of local cars that um, competed against the international cars that weekend and ultimately won out. But, I mean, first of all, the, the Diet Coke BMW team, when I rewatched these races, like, they were a they were a fantastic team. Yeah, that was, um, that was super impressive. Um, because you think, too, that was, um, what was his name? Lyle Williamson, I think. Who yeah, he was running it, but... I, yeah, but I mean that was the rem- not well not the remnants, but it was um basically what was the Frank Gardner's team. That you had us on say Frank, did he finish up ninety six? Yeah. Early ninety six, yeah. 
and then sort of BMW yeah. took more of an ownership of the team. So, but they which were in, in hindsight was not the greatest move. But um, no, but yeah, no. no, that 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 was super super impressive. Um, they, well, you think the speed they actually to qualify the pole, um, obviously went on to win the race. But yeah, no, that was uh, a well put together and 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 a local effort too. Yeah, like, well, think, yeah. I, I was surprised they didn't roll in your, uh, you know, Steve Sobers or your, uh, you know, pick your international um, drivers. Well, they had a third car, and which was entered and ran a few laps, um, mainly for David Brabham during '97 race week. But initially, that was earmarked for a um, for a European pair. But there was a clashing German. STW Cup round that weekend, which took out Winklehock and Chicago, and there were rumours that maybe Roberta Ravalia and Steve Soper were going to um, were going to take up that seat, who'd been running for BMW in the FIA GT Championship, but in the end, in the end, that came to nothing. But that yeah, but I mean they they didn't need them in the end. Jeff Brabham got he was fastest in provisional qualifying, and then. Obviously, Morris got pole in the shootout, and they were on the road one-two in the race. And I th- and yeah, it really at the time that that team was just as professional as HRT. I'd say more professional in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, they de- de- their budget was up there, and um, budget up there. They had some. They had a bit more class about them. So um, yeah, no, I, I um fully agree with that. One thing that stood out for me in the races from BMW were their pit stops. They were they were really. They were really slick in the pit stops. I mean, the cars used a lot of oil, but apart from that, um, <laughs> there was one pit stop where they made something like 20 seconds on the Renault. Yeah, which which surprised me. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, you think of that 97 um, uh, British Touring Car Championship, there were no pit stops. Like, it, it was a foreign concept um, for, let's say, the Williams team and the Vauxhall teams. But still, you'd think with European, um, you know, heritage of endurance racing, your spas and your things like that. Yeah, people would have been a bit better prepared um, in that sense. Obviously, the BMW team and the Audi team um, had, uh, you know, yeah, involvement with your Sandown 500s, your Bathurst 1000s as class cars or outright cars, so they were a bit more drilled. But, yeah, I was amazed the difference was that big. The Brad Jones Audi team, um, that was Brad Jones Racing's first attempt at doing the Bathurst 1000 in 1997 and 98 and they um i mean they were where you'd expect them up the front i think it was more the car that hurt them more than anything yes yeah, didn't didn't have um was running a lot of weight that that year which obviously yeah. hurt them up up and down but uh you know it was built like a tank um only one of them made the uh top 10 the second uh number 11 audi cam um Cam McConville's car didn't make the top ten, but yeah, no, they oh. just trucked trucked around. But ultimately, yeah, it just didn't have the uh, didn't have the punch. So yeah, especially in '98 as well. They they got um they were really left standing in '98. Yeah, hung 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 in there though. But yeah, you could tell like the the latest Volvos and because that car was I suppose that was the '97 um '97 spec Audi then. In the '98 yeah. season, so yeah, well, yeah although I, the Nissan just moved on. Yeah, although I'm not sure there was a '97 spec A4. I think even in the British touring cars in '97, it was still basically a '96 spec Quattro because they'd moved on to developing the front-wheel drive car for '98. I think they just had a bit more weight pulled out of them for the '98 race, but as you said, not that it mattered. 
funny too, I never at the time I don't think I believed it. Looking back at it now, the Oryx liveried Audi looks so much better than the uh the silver Audi ninety eight. I, I agree totally. That's a mega livery with the dark blue and red. I love yeah. that car. Yeah. Yeah, it was so good. Like, I think at the time, all I wanted was, I'm like, oh, I'll just be like the British Touring Car Championship with the, the four rings. But now, looking back on it, yeah, I'm like, that was a sweet car. And I've actually got a 118 scale of the Audi just looking right across from me right now. I, I agree completely. I remember watching, what, what, when I watched them both back, that the 97 livery is fantastic. I mean, I, the, the, I mean the, the silver one looks okay from 98, especially with the bright yellow um, wing mirrors and that. But yeah, that there was there was something about the the orange and blue and white livery. And the other thing is that when they moved to the um, as like you said, Daniel, you know, you were you were taken a bit as a kid by the silver, and the silver with the red rings. But uh, that also equated to no sponsorship dollars. Rx jumped back on, and I like I just it was such a waste. It's like they peeled off the um, Audi four rings, and just stuck a black Rx. And I was like, eh, what are you doing? Like, yeah. pick one or the other kind of thing. So yeah. They should have just repainted them red for the 98 race. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but anyways, that's um, small detail. Paul Morris did a good job in the Audi as well. In 98, he, was, he was as, seemed as quick as um, quick as the number one car. Yeah. Well, he, he's, here's another question at, at the both of you. Who won them that Like, I know we'll get to it, but who won them that race, the 97 race? Craig Baird or Paul Morris? Who was if you had to pick a, the driver there that got them over the line? Who who do you go for? I'm gonna uh, go with big. I'm gonna go with with big Kev, Paul Morris. Big I was like Kev, and then I am like, oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm with you now. Sorry. You know, okay. Well, I, I only asked that because obviously he was number one driver in terms of status, but Beto, yeah. and obviously to their detriment, but Beto um. He drove the majority of the race. Yeah, I mean Morris got Morris put the car on pole. He, he, I mean he kept the car in second place majority of his of his two stints. Um, Baird hopped in, and I think oh, I mean Baird pretty much did the same thing. Baird did stand on it at the end though. He did a his last well his whole his whole drive of the car was impressive. But that that final stint particularly, like he he just he was on it. You know, David Brabham wasn't really making much time on him towards the end. And, I mean, Frank Beeler, one of the things that stand out for me was Frank Beeler in the in the last stint when Baird comes out of the pits and he and he can just see him ahead of him. I mean, Beeler absolutely throws the Audi across the top of the mountain, but Baird, Baird just drives away from him. Yeah, I think that summed up the uh, speed difference. Even even when Brabham later on was running, running uh, Beeler down, just, yeah. um, do you know what I mean? That had so much more car speed, which was heartbreaking at a time because I was an Audi fan um, from both those races. So, uh, yeah. One one car that stood out for me in 97 was the um, Gary Rogers Motorsport Nissan. Stephen Richards and Matt Neal qualified in the top 10 and then in the shootout um, out-qualified, the, out-qualified Brad Jones in the Audi, lined up seventh on the grid. And... They had some mechanical problems, but they were they were right they were right in there. Yeah, that was a that, hey, once again a great looking car, well put together, and yeah, just um just punched around. Steve Richards, obviously, well, he both his performances, ninety seven and ninety eight race, 
here. Obviously got him a lot of uh, goodwill and pedigree from the European teams. But, uh, yeah, no, that was um, that was really good. Pity we'd, um, we didn't have that car, or sorry, that same level of GW or GRM and Richards running in the um, Australian Super Touring Championship in 98. Obviously, the car lived on. I think it went to Jim Cornish or someone else. Uh, went to, yeah, went to Adam Kaplan in the 98 Australian Super Touring Championship. And then for Bathurst, yeah, Jim Cornish drove it. Visit your vet. Missing um, Primera, yeah. But no, you're right. That was um, that was a very well put together um, and speedy car, as, as we saw, was the building blocks of their uh, 98 campaign. Well, actually, there was, there was a... a um, there was an extra international car that came to Bathurst in 97. There were the obviously the two Peugeots, the two Renaults, the two Vauxhalls. Uh, there was also Matt Neal's British touring car, Nissan Primera, that was flown down to be used as spare parts for the GRM Nissan. <laughs> it's a pity it didn't race. That's what I mean. Like, there's so many of these, you know, obviously everything's great in hindsight, but, yeah, so many um, opportunities or missed opportunities um, of what could have added more layers to this race. So what I like about the um, uh, the Peter Hills, um, uh, what was it called, the night racing Mondeos. Yeah. You have to say one of the um, smallest teams in the field, and they roll out yeah. three cars in 97, I think two in 98. Um, uh, other way around, two in 97, three in 98. Oh, I was like, wow, I was just like, yeah, you got all these other teams kind of, you know, rolling out cars just to run practice laps and things like that. I'm like, nah, if the cars are there, get them out there and run. A bit like, uh, yeah, the night racing uh, Mondeos. Yeah. Well, actually, the, the that Fastway Peugeot we spoke about earlier, they had two of the cars up at Bathurst for 97 as well, but only raced one of them. T- Tony Newman ran that Peugeot we bought after 97. That ran at Bathurst in 98, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, the, um, the 406 that he bought after Bathurst 97. Yeah, which was never the same. What no, would have happened no. between that Bathurst weekend and uh, where's round one? Calder Park. Calder Park, but that, that, that's when he, um, he had a mechanical problem. A mechanical problem at the end of the front straight, and yeah. spun off and that got air over to yeah, yeah. something. Yeah. Um, yeah, something happened there, but um, I, I don't think they had the budget really to make the most of that car, so to speak. No, no, no. But you like you think it, when um, when looking at the '98 race, Peter Hills yeah. puts his '94, '95 spec Mondeo in the top ten, and yeah. you just think what that Peugeot managed the year before. That's a car that deserved to be in the top ten or had the potential to be in the top ten. Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. Well, actually, but both of um, Tony Newman's team actually bought both of them. Both of the 406s for for the 98 season, and Patrick Watts was actually rumoured to come over and drive one of them in the 98 season. But um, whatever, I think there was a bit of a a few management problems with the team, and um, Tony Newman ended up sort of running the whole the whole deal himself. And that second car never turned a wheel until the 99 Bathurst 500, as um, uh. as far as I know, in terms of a super touring race. Yeah. Oh, some missed opportunities. Patrick, Patrick Watts. He, yeah. Now, there, there was – obviously, we'll talk about 99 later, but that, that was uh, that was a season of what could have been for 
Patrick Watson that 406. Yeah. You mentioned Peter Hills with his Mondeo. Um, the turnaround between 97 and 98 for for that team was, was amazing. In, in 97, um, well, Hills, Hills didn't even get off the start grid initially. Started from the started from the pits and then he turns that into 1998. He um, obviously makes the top ten, finishes the race in sixth. But also his uh, his second car in 97 had a, had a few had a few issues. Uh, Jenny Thompson was one of the drivers and she had the bonnet the bonnet blow up um, after coming out of the pits up Mountain Straight. And there's um, there's images of uh, television images of her parked on the side of the road and. She's out trying to bash the bonnet down. Yeah. Um, all done without the use of a safety car. And later on, the 89 car, it, um, it was having um, fuel issues, fuel pickup issues, and it wasn't able to make it up the mountain. So twice it stopped on the approach to the cutting, and twice both of her, both of her other co-drivers um, reversed it from the cutting back to the pits. <laughs> yeah, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> and received they, they got. Received reprimands. Yeah, he doesn't say weren't their licenses basically revoked temporarily or you know for a little yeah. a long time. Yeah, you can't be doing that. No, and like that that was you know I suppose one of the things that made not necessarily reversing the wrong way down the track, but generally you know I mean? that's what made this event special. You had the number one touring car team in the world in Williams, and then you've also got you know, the Mondeos that were, you know, quite, like, quite honourably run out of your garage kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. that's that's what I like about the event and a lot of things what's missing today. But that, that was that was such a nice element to this race. Definitely, definitely. And ac- actually another, um, the mention of Jenny Thompson putting the bonnet, bashing the bonnet down under green flag on Mountain Straight, that's probably one of the, the big differences in the 97 race and the fact that um, at one point the um, the Neil Bates, Mark Adderton, Toyota Camry breaks down on pit straight and a uh, tow truck drives out, hooks it up, tows it round turn one into the back of the pits, um, all under green. And then at the tail end of the race when David Brabham gets hit by Jean-Francois Homrule at the cutting, both of them spin around but then get back going. We have like three or four laps under the, under the safety car. Effectively won them the race. Exactly, exactly. I wonder if... But, um, but I don't mind that because if you have a look at the footage, um, Brabham and Jean-Francois are basically doing three-point turns in the entrance to the cutting. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, it, that, it doesn't surprise me that, yeah, that would call a safety car. But when you compare it to Neil Bates getting towed around Hill Corner... Yeah, during the race, it was a different time. Even um, if you remember in the dying stages of um, the '97 race, where Paul Pickett's Hyundai, um, the engine explodes or um, a wheel, a wheel basically caves in, um, just at uh, McFellany Park, or just before Skyline, actually, I should say, um, and he's parked up. And you'd think safety car, but they run the two or three laps to uh, finish the race. What uh, what did we make of Peter Brock in the '97 race? What well, it had a good livery. Had a great livery. Yeah, that car did did look look a million dollars, and it was quick. Any, any, 
Well, Brock, Brock, he, I mean, he'd driven the Volvo in the 96 Australian Super Touring Championship, so he was familiar with front-wheel drive. But, I mean, he he did a great job in that opening stint. That, that I opening, mean, he, yeah. He he did very – I mean, take Plato out of it, but you can't, you've, he was so dominant. You want to remove him from that. But, yeah, I mean, Brock was throwing it around with um, – was it Patrick Watts, um, David Brabham, or, no, Jeff Brabham Jeff. in the opening stint. Yeah, yeah. So like they had a great little yeah. loss. Yeah, that was um good. And near the end of the stint, obviously started to fall off slightly. But no, that was you think from someone who drove one of those overweight taxis um for the ninety seven, you know, most of ninety seven to jump in that nimble little voxel. Um no, that was hugely impressive. And then obviously we'll come to it, but that uh, that pit stop. Um I shed a tear re-watching that again because it was just a complete waste. Yeah, well, it undid the great first stint. Well, they, they dropped a lap and a half, I think. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's all she wrote. <laughs> um, question, though, did did Brock get any testing in beforehand? No, I don't think so, no. Well, that's more impressive, isn't it? Well, yeah, to exactly. Just come, just come out and um, drive that. Yeah. Well, it showed he didn't have any testing on first on his on the first day of practice on Wednesday when he rolled it at Caltex Chase. Oh yeah. Oh, there you go. I had forgotten that. Yeah. But no, he was uh, Derek Warwick was really quick as well. Like Derek Warwick went from ninth to fourth in the shootout, and he, I mean he's pretty much then set up Brock's first stint. Which yeah. Well, and 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 obviously you know that's Warwick near the car could turn it on. Um, and then give it to the safe pair of hands for the first stint. Yeah, no, it was, it was very good. Do you know, and, and not jumping off, we'll jump back to it too, but the other thing I found interesting about that first stint was Peugeot half-filling the car on that first stint. Now, uh, of Radisic and Harvey. Yeah, in the number six. I was trying to think in regards of whatever category, Bathurst opening stints, who half-fills cars? Well, I, I don't know if we're allowed to mention um, mention this, but um, that was how Jason Bright and Stephen Richards got off strategy in the 98 FAI 1000 Classic, which partly set up their victory. Okay, well, that's a decent <laughs> answer then. I've, I've maybe never they, maybe, race, so that's, uh, yeah. Maybe they learnt it off um, MSD yeah. Peugeot. But it's interesting, yeah, so Brock... Um, Brock, with the with the backing of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation in that Vectra, um, I mean he he did that event as the um, against the wishes of Holden and Mobile, but because it was his retirement year, both of them sort of turned a blind eye and um, didn't try to stop him doing the race. And I mean Brock Brock treated that as 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 importantly as any other Bathurst, which was you know. Which was good to see from the event's perspective. Well, and I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but he viewed this as the the real Bathurst, so to speak, isn't it? Like he was going to race in this thing, hell or high, high water. Yes, yeah. I I think particularly once the deal got announced, he was like, I was never going to miss this race. Well, in fact, earlier in the piece, he'd been linked with a um with a Honda alongside Neil Crompton very early in the piece. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Whether whether that was um, 
ever really going to happen who knows but it showed that he was being linked to linked to drives right from the start so does that mean um uh general motors or holden in australia didn't support this that the triple eight cars at all 97 they i think in kind they um lent some um higher cars and from memory brock from from memory brock had Holden on his driver's suit, maybe on the Wednesday, but then it was missing for the rest of the week. And he had Vectra signature signatures um, insignia on his race suit. I think. Okay. So I think they, really they sort went of went out of their way to help. Yeah, but then '98 was a different story. Holden got correct. Yeah. Holden, um, that was very much a General Motors effort. You had um, obviously the, well, I mean the the second car, the Warwick. Cleland car in 98 pretty much all it said on that car was Vectra it had not a lot of other sponsorship and obviously carried a Vauxhall badge on the front but then you had the the Holden backed car in 98 which was badged as a Holden Vectra had Murphy yeah. and and Ingle driving and I mean oh I mean they them two were two of the stars of the 98 race really I think yeah, and I, agree. I think that was – but that showed you the opportunity. I think that Holden Vectran, obviously, was on provisional pole and all that. But apart from the crash that, obviously, Brock got to see firsthand, that was um, – you know, that that image or that car sticks out so much. And they – I mean, they outpaced Cleland and Warwick all weekend. Which is, is incredible when you because think in, in both of them. Murph and uh, Ingle didn't have – oh, didn't have much front-wheel drive experience, did they? Murphy had full drive Audi experience, but that was about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, M- Murphy had raced the um, Oryx Toyota Carina in part time in the '94 um, Australian Manufacturers Championship, and also did Bathurst alongside James K. James K. in the Carina in '94. So he had a bit, and then Ingle had done um, the second half of the '96 Australian Super Touring Championship in a Vauxhall Cavalier. So both of them had a little. Both of them had a little bit of front-wheel drive experience, but I mean, I mean that wasn't there. That wasn't what they were driving yeah, day in, day, day out day in '97. Well, actually, Murphy wasn't doing a lot of driving in '98, but um, but no, I mean they were. Th- that Vectra was the only car to keep um, Richards Rydell and Richards Neal in sight in '98. Yeah, and then unfortunately, if it wasn't for a um. A, if it wasn't for the if it wasn't for the peanut, as um Russell Ingle called it, the uh, Peter Van Bruegel Nissan Sentra. Yeah, I, I don't have any time for uh, Russell Ingle and his bullying of other drivers. Uh, but what was it? It was a it wasn't a Conrad. What was it? A um what was in the middle of the track that um oh, oh, dropped the oil? I'm, I'm, it was something, but um it came but, yeah, from it was the, in the two Audi. Yeah. Oh, the 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 bit of debris came from the the Nissan Sentra. Yeah. But, and then the and then, Audi ran over it. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Morris ran over it and sprayed oil all down the I mean there was probably a bit of oil that came out of the Nissan as well. Um but yeah that I mean that sprayed oil everywhere and then Brock was right on the scene as um Ingle and then Harvey came in and then I think Wayne Wakefield in um in a Carina he got involved in it afterwards as well but that was off camera. Wayne Wakefield just before he's uh Commodore Cup taste. Yes, it was. Yep, that was the next year, and after his um, Super Touring days in '97, oh, in the super cheap BMW. Um, 
Brock, what do you remember Matt Neal more for, Bathurst 2000 or Bathurst 1998? Oh, Bathurst 2000, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I remember I remember from this 98 race because in many ways this was sort of the making of him. He was able to. It was one of the. He'd he'd had good cars in the British Touring Car Championship, but this was um, this was one of the first times he'd been able to go toe to toe with a front runner in the a British Touring Car Championship for all the the 98 champion Ricard Rydell, and he um, he was all over him for um most of the second half of the race, or actually pretty much in every stint during the race. Uh, what what do you reckon was more impressive, um, Jason Plato's first stint in 1997? Or Ricard Rydell's pole lap in 1998. Oh, I know. I'd go with Ricard Rydell. No, because Ricard Rydell laps still get spread around everywhere. You still hear about it to this day. Whereas Matt Neal's stint, you don't really hear about it that much. J- Jason Plato's stint. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Got your Brits mixed up. I I just feel that comparing them, it's like that's hard. Like. That's saying who's better, Fangio or Lewis Hamilton. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's single lap qualifying. Which which moments better? Yeah, I just I think, yeah yeah no, you're right. Yeah, Rydell's um, single lap is more iconic because it's easier to. Do you know what I mean? Like it's two minutes and fourteen seconds of probably the best lap ever of Mount Panorama. But Plato's what made his so good was. The stint that he just pulled out a second, a second and a half per lap, uh, you know, lead by 10, 10 seconds after six or seven laps, like that's hugely impressive. Maybe up there with Marcus, Winkle, Marcus Winklehock's opening stint in 2015 at the 12 hour. Maybe, maybe that's what we need to look at, the best opening yeah. stints at Bathurst. Maybe that's, that's a, that, yeah, that might be a better comparison, but um. Well, no, I mean, here's, one that, here's one that I know Brock will have the answer to, but I reckon he's wrong. What's more impressive, Ricard Rydell's 1998 pole-winning shootout lap versus Greg Murphy's in 2003? Uh, I mean, Murphy's lap is certainly more spectacular and is, is more famous, but I will say for a super touring car to do a two-minute 14 is... um. It's just as impressive. So I'm actually going to surprise you, Daniel. I'm going to say they're both. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was counting on you being a Murphy uh, disciple. It's just like for what those touring cars were, the lap times they did is just so unbelievable and hard to comprehend that they could be that fast. That um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you on this one. I think you have to take it in context of um, who could have possibly seen a 2.14, like Brock was saying, from a Super Tourer, even in qualifying trim in 98. But by the same token, I mean, who would have ever seen a 2-minute 6 from a VO Supercar in 2003? I think that the, the lap, the laps that both of them did were just so much quicker than what the next best was that I think they're quite hard to split, really. They were both just complete standouts from anything else at the time. No, I agree. They were just head and shoulders above everything else, and I think that's that's the thing. Like, I forget how much faster Murphy was, but, um, yeah, Rydell, what was he, two seconds or 1.9 seconds faster than uh, 
the Nissan did Steve in second Bridges. place. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, if we're into comparisons, then okay. What what was the better? Um, what do you think was the the more exciting moment? R- Rydell's pole lap or Menu just missing out on Morris's time in '97 by 0. 0.02 of a second. It was pretty well, tight. On, a pole lap's always um, more exciting than someone missing out. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, but, you know, but, but when Menu when because Menu crossed the I think line, it's more and impressive it, when someone smashes a field than if it's really close. Yeah, yeah, I can, yeah, I can pay that. I guess I was just um, thinking from the aspect of, um, you know, if you're watching and then, because everyone expected Menu to get pole in 97. And when he's come around the last corner and he, he comes across line and he just missed out, as opposed to when Rydell did his lap and Rydell comes around the last corner, takes the checkered flag and everyone just goes like, wow, what was that? I think the... The interesting thing around the Renault had so much speed and I'm still perplexed where it went in that shootout lap, unless it's just, you know, those guys taking it a bit easier. But that's still to this day, I'm trying to figure out over a lap how that BMW was faster. Yeah, or well, especially as, you know, I guess that just shows how good the Diet Coke team had those BMWs going because they, they, weren't, they weren't the latest, they weren't 97 spec cars. Yeah, no, it's it's true, and and as you said, they they ran to a schedule that weekend, and that and they weren't um they weren't getting like flustered by the speed, or at least externally, not getting flustered. They just stuck to their program relentlessly, um, and then somehow wound up on pole, and uh, yeah, bossed the race too. One of the main talking points from the '98 race was uh, Richards versus Richards, Dad Jim and son Stephen. Jim in the uh, works Volvo S40, Stephen Richards in the semi works Nissan Primera. Uh, what did you think of it, Daniel? Particularly the um, the the start of the race. Well, I just think how good was it having father and son front row of the grid, biggest race in Australia, Nissan versus Volvo, probably one of the oldest head to head battles in world motorsport, and but also, I love the story how it came together. So obviously, on the Saturday after the shootout, Rydell sticks it on pole. Um, Stevie Richards um, solidly, solid two minutes sixteen, sit, lines up in second. And yeah, so Channel Seven, um, the Bathurst City Council, and obviously um, everyone got together and was looking at ways to promote the event. And they thought that the father son starting the race would be a good story. So um, I think excellently, but I'm still surprised to this day that TWR and um, uh, who ran the car? Matt Nils, Matt, the Nissan Ten, team run by Team Ten Dynamic. Dynamics. Yeah, yeah, actually um, played ball and, um, yeah, um, agreed to both put the Richards in to start the race, which I think is obviously great for the event, but you just would – you wouldn't see it these days. I mean, two um, two teams obviously batting out, battling out for this victory. Um, you know, putting the events um, best interests um, of and letting that lead their driver selections for the opening race, the opening stint of the race. I would have thought Stephen Richards would have probably started anyway. Do you think? Well, yeah, actually, and, and sorry, I lied with that. Actually, no, I didn't. No, I was two sixteen four forty one. Sorry. So I'm just uh, 
checking out the pile, the second place lap time that uh, Stevie Richards did there. Yeah, no, I think he would have started more likely, but equally, um, Matt Neal had the 97 race under his belt too. So um, I guess from the Nissan point of view, it was much of a muchness in terms of pace yeah. between the two of them. Um, but also, you'd think Matt Neal, it's his team, or at least his dad's team, so he might have been pushing to start the race. Um, but, yeah, TWR, I guess that's where the biggest um, thing came from. You think Rodell after the high of Saturday. Um, they were thinking maybe put him in and, um, you know, do a Play-Doh from 97. Who uh, who would you have preferred to have won the 98 race? Which Richards? So I think at the time I was all for the team dynamics. Um, yeah. Nissan winning. And you think of that Nissan too, like um, at least in the British Championship, Volvo was at least on the start of the season quite dominant. But you think that second half of 98, those Nissans really came on strong. Um, yeah. So to think, seeing team dynamic, um, obviously with a decent amount of support, but uh, yeah, stick it to the Volvo. Um, one of the funny, one of the funniest bits of the telecast was that they sort of made a not a big deal, but it was a talking point that because um, by that time Anthony Reid was one of the um, Nissan Works drivers in England, and he he'd left uh, announced he was leaving for Ford for 1999. And throughout the telecast, it was said that uh, it's between Stephen Richards and Matt Neal for the second Works Nissan seat for the 99 British Touring Car Championship. <laughs> and um, Gary Wilkinson on the podium even uh, jokingly says, are you, guys, you guys are going to duke out who, um, who, gets, who gets the seat. And because uh, it was announced not long after that uh, Laurent Aiello got the seat. And both, <laughs> both of them missed out. But uh, let's... Speaking of Gary Wilkinson, uh, the commentary team for the Channel 7 put together for both of those events were right up there with, I think, perhaps some of the, the best commentary team you could have had in any Bathurst race that's been held there. I mean, for starters, they had Murray Walker. Just continuing that F1 flavour and flair. Um, obviously, he was commentating... Um, were they both on ITV at the time? Was the British touring cars? Is that how the hookup uh, was in no, Brit- the UK? No, the hookup initially with Murray Walker and British touring cars was um, they were both on the BBC. But then for 1997, um, F1 moved to ITV, but British touring cars stayed on BBC. And but Murray did both that year. Yeah, well, testament. Well, testament to how much he enjoyed the. Uh, British touring cars, and obviously to come all the way down to Australia and um, call both those races. He obviously got a lap in uh, Peter Brock's, um, uh, no, Brad Jones's Audi, and then one of Peter Brock's originals, the Austin. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, no, it, it was it was obviously testament to the event, but also how much he enjoyed it um, to come down here. But, yeah, as you said, him with Moff, those dulcet tones. Um, who do we have? We have Pappy in the uh, in the Pappy pits. And pa- Pat Walsh in the pits. Oh, Pat Walsh, Walsh yeah. not not a not not a motorsport um, aficionado, aficionado. I but 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 mm. he'd be he'd been around the sport through Channel Seven for a while, so he he knew what he knew what he was involved in. Um, obviously, Gary Wilkinson led the coverage, um, the commentary team, and then uh, Richard Hay, who was he he knew what he was talking about. He'd been to Bathurst many times. He was. The European touring car expert. 
like as you said, Paddy Welsh, but Paddy Welsh, he was he was solid as a pit reporter, very capable. But yeah, no, I think they had a they had a nice balance between the European expertise, Murray's flair, and then obviously um, Moff and you think Brock in '98 as well jumped in the com box. I guess um, getting getting Murray Walker to those Bathurst was like getting um, getting John Hind off to the twelve hours Brock. Johnny Palmer. Johnny, even better. Yeah. Well, Johnny Palmer. Johnny Palmer that, that is what you like get, No, that'd be like getting like Martin Brundle out to do like a a state series at Wakefield Park. Like that's how <laughs> much of a swing that that, that would be. Yeah. But that that that, that, that commentary team they they all got on so well. That it was re- it's a real enjoy it's an enjoyable commentary to listen to. I think as well, just for people that go back and watch it, um, you know, that maybe didn't watch it at the time, going back and hearing Murray Walker, whether you like his commentary or not, again, it just adds a different flavour to the event that helps it stand out from other sort of events around that time. And I don't know. It's just it's just another important thing, and I think it's part of the reason why it just it still resonates with people so much. These events, why they remember them so well. Do hypothetical time? Do we think the the Renault in '97 could have pulled back a lap in 60 laps? No. No way. No. Oh, I mean, if it got a safety car, maybe. I'm just trying to think how many safety cars there were. There was the um obviously the Audi and the BMW, but nah, tall order. Like after that point, they weren't going as fast as they were in that morning stint as well. So, I mean, never say never, but I think that's that's a tall order. What do you see? Luke asked the question because he thinks the answer is <laughs> yes. I th- oh, I mean, they were just so much faster. See, earlier in the race and. Now, obviously, they they lost a lot of time with the brake pad change, and Menu was trying hard because obviously he had the off just before the car retired. Now it's hard, obviously, back then that the the lap, the timing and scoring wasn't the same as it was today. So I'm I'm not basing this off in depth analysis, but on the outside, I I don't see why they couldn't have at least had a good stab at it. Yeah, full lap though. Yeah, because I think they'd gotten back on the lead lap. Before they retired, they gained two, two and a, you know what, two minutes twenty seconds, say an average race lap, probably a bit slower, to gain that amount of time in two hours. I don't think so. Maybe if you like had the whole day to do it with green flag running, maybe. I think it was too competitive. I think the BMWs would have managed the the gap as well. Like they probably weren't going all out, but that. Yeah. That part of the race too. So, um, I mean, it would have been great. It is a pity that we didn't actually get them to see him try, but I just think the fragility of that car was um, obviously on display. I guess what, what, a car, what a car it was, though. I did watch the onboards with Plato and um, Manu. Jeez, that was just one of the best touring cars going around, like at the time, but also looking back at it as well. It, yeah. It, it just looked the business. And well, especially the way, the the way it flowed, yeah, across the top, that was uh, very, very impressive. The Super Tourers in general were really good to watch across the top of the mountain. Yeah, I think, well, from Griffin's Bend basically to Forest Elbow, they were um, 
they really did come into their own. There's footage of Warwick. I think it was in the shootout. I mean, he holds a he holds a really nice slide across uh, across McPhillamy. Even um, can't remember, was it Morris or in the '98 shootout, the Audis too. Obviously, they had no car speed, but they they're drifting the thing, sliding it, which is no small feat in a four wheel drive Audi as well. Yeah. One one thing I did like about the um the end of the '97 race was um it was like a Le Mans finish with with cars crawling around like for instance the 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 fastways Peugeot we 405 we mentioned um we mentioned earlier on um it was parked under the bridge on about lap 155 near the end of the lap and then so it's obviously waited for most of the leaders to crawl then it's crawled down and he ended up pushing it across the line well then and the uh, number 11 Audi finishing with three tires yes yes did too get across yeah Actually, another thing from the end of the 97 race, um, during uh, David Brabham's sort of charge towards the front when he's um, all over the back of Frank Beeler, uh, he tries to duck down the inside on the run to McPhillamy, a bit like um, Van Gisbergen and Bern Schneider in the 2014 Bathurst 12 hour, when everyone, when Van Gisbergen had that big go at Schneider and everyone's like, oh, you can't do that. And Hang on, when he had a big go at Schneider, oh, yeah, actually, you're right. I thought, no, when... Um Van Gisbergen made that comment about he saw the big German head bobbling in the mirror. Yep. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was thinking that more than uh, more than the lunge he tried. Yeah. A few interesting things to come from the um, the '97 race was that it was Michelin's first Bathurst win since uh, 1969. That is a unique bit of history. And an- another another part of the interesting was obviously the race was backed both years by AMP who um, they were right behind the original change to the super touring regulations. And it was pointed out that um, the AMP sponsorship of the 1000 was its largest sporting commitment outside of the Olympics, which obviously these races were in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics in 2000. That's incredible. So that, the and that era, was three years. It was the era for like three letter acronym. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. Well, and actually, seeing as you um, allude to FAI, um, FAI, obviously, they sponsored the um, Warren Luff, Julian Bailey, Honda Accord in the 1997 race. And then promptly, of course, in 1998, came to be the title sponsor of the FAI 1000 Classic and proudly um, stated that, you know, they like to support races with Australian cars. The hypocrisy in that statement is ridiculous. (laughs) So out of the two races, if you had to pick your favourite thing that sticks out? That's a tough one because there's so much. Definitely the big crash because that's like what I remember. It's like my first vivid memory at a racetrack. I think just the, for me, the duel between the um, Nissan and the Volvo and the closeness of the finish. I think that's it. What was it? 1.9 seconds over six hours. That was, uh, that was incredible. I think that stands out, which is saying a lot because you think a Brabham Brothers winning the Bathurst 1000 that their dad didn't, you'd think that would rate highly, but that's, to me, I reckon that, that just nudges it. It probably would have if they'd have been first across the line and been able to celebrate it on the podium that day. Yeah, it's fair. I think that's... You're right. That's, that's a good point because it didn't get announced till the next morning, did it? Uh, uh, yeah, later that night, maybe the next. I think later that night, I heard about it on the late news. Yeah, okay. 
yeah, no, that did kind of steal their thunder. But they they still proudly to this day proudly say they won they won Bathurst together. How do I? I think me, I I I I do really love Plato's opening stint to '97. It's it's not necessarily exciting motor racing, but just how you know he, him and Morris go side by side up Mountain Straight. They go side by side around um, Griffin's Bend. They go side by side up towards the cutting, and then Plato gets in front, and then he just takes off. Just in terms of driving, I thought that was really, really impressive. And probably, I guess, the other thing, one thing that sticks out for me is just how competitive the 1997 event was. Um, Particularly if you take the the top nine qualifying times leading into the shootout was um, how close it was. Like There was less than a second between the top nine, which in modern modern um motor racing in many ways isn't overly impressive but for the time when it was open tires um there were very few control components in super touring um that's that's quite that's a very very close spread i think with the relative experience of so many of the teams and drivers as well like that showed you the quality of the field to be that close over, as you said, nine of the ten cars. So, and I think looking, touching on the Plato and the williams Brenos in that race, too, it's such a pity they didn't come back in 98. Yeah. Because they'd kind of laid the groundwork. Yeah. I think if they, if they came back, and they were close to coming back, too, I forget what the exact reason was that they pulled the pin, but they were ready to go. you think they would have, um, well, they would have been right up there with the, Nissans and the Volvos. Well, yeah, and they'd entered. The cars are both um, profiled in the 1998 program for the race. They were entered as car six and car seven with um, Menu, Plato and Graham Moore listed as drivers. Um, Alan Jones hadn't been confirmed or real overly talked about, I don't think, either to be the second driver. Um, and, and originally there was actually going to be a third Renault come out as well. The... Um, DC Cook prepared Renault that had been driven in the 98 British Touring Car Championship by Tommy Rustad. That was originally supposed to come as well, but in the end, in the end, none of them came out, unfortunately. What's going to waste? You think you could have had, you could have thrown Villeneuve or Franson in that fourth seat if Jones didn't take it up as well? You know, you know the question I have, what do you think cost more to run? Alan Jones's 1980 F1 car or his Super Touring car? Probably Super Tourer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to ask you, though, Brock, in that crash in 98, did you get any souvenirs? No. Well, none that I remember. No. I definitely would have shown you if I did. What about an autograph? No. I just I just have vivid memories of the crash and nothing after it. That's understandable. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with some more after the break. Breakthrough Health and Wellness. The Breakthrough 60-Day Challenge combines a highly effective weight loss program and a high-end personal fitness experience without costly memberships. In a culture of flash workouts and going hard, Breakthrough have taken a more sustainable approach and developed the perfect program that will not only get you fit and healthy, but also help you shed stubborn weight that you thought was never going to budge. 
Breakthrough will offer new inspiration and goals that will lead to life changes you can easily maintain. Each week, Breakthrough offer interesting muscular endurance, strengthening and functional movement exercises with a training app that will rival any workout you have done at the gym. For more information, visit mybreakthrough.com.au. That's M-Y-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U. And follow Breakthrough on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to our podcast on the 1997 and 1998 Super Touring Bathurst 1000s. Now, after the 97 race, it was announced that um, Super Tourers had signed a five-year deal with um, with the Bathurst Consortium to continue as the face of the of the traditional great race. As a sign of, I guess, in a way, how successful the 1997 race had been, um, Tony Cochran had said straight after the 97 race that it would be inappropriate for him to comment. And Wayne Caddick from Tiga had said that it was a good race and a good finish. But he also wondered if the organisers could sustain the losses, which admittedly Seven and the consortium had openly admitted that they had, had expected to make a loss from the 97 race. Ultimately, Daniel, do you think Channel 7 did enough in those two years with the event? Well, it's hard to fault them because of obviously they did um, fund a lot of, uh, you know, in particular shipping, getting these teams out. My only criticism would be that, yeah, if you're going to make that investment in 97 to then slowly pull that back over the next two years, seem to undermine that investment in the first year. That's where I could um, critique Channel 7 a little bit. But then ultimately you look at from 2000 as well, um, the formula in Europe started to weaken. So then potentially Channel 7 were just one year ahead of the ball game, anyways. So, yeah, still, I think, um, yeah, that investment over one year to basically put that amount of money in, uh, I think they had to go hard for the next two years to make the most of that investment. What do you reckon, Brock? Yeah, pretty much what. um... What uh, Daniel said, with the way that the series sort of ate itself alive internationally, it didn't really matter what they did. It was going to uh, do the same here. And I think as well, you know, the, the public were definitely on side of the um, of the touring, the five-litre touring cars. So I think they did a lot. Probably could have done more in the second year, but ultimately I don't think it would have made that much of a difference. I think, which the other thing too is, you had the unique scenario where the actual Super Touring Championship was played on Channel 10 throughout the year, but then there was Bathurst on Channel 7 for the 1000. So I think that that was the way the contracts were, but I think Channel 7 could have gone after the championship broadcast more heavily and then almost used um, the, the championship in the season to obviously build interest and um, leverage the 1000, whereas it kind of felt that it just turned up each October, um, yeah. which was which was a bit of a concern. I also wonder whether they um, needed a like a lead-in endurance race as well. 
which costs, you know what I mean, just adding more costs. But I wonder if that as well would have been a you know, turn one of the championship races into an endurance race or something, just as that little lead in um, to the 1,000. Yeah, I I agree with both of you. I mean, in some ways, Seven invested, as we said, a lot of time and money. As, as you said, Daniel, they imported the cars, um, the British cars. I mean... Across both years, they they gave the event 13 hours of coverage um, across the Saturday and Sunday, just as they did uh, pre-1997. So, you know, you had your three hours on the Saturday, you had your 10 hours from eight to six on Sunday. And also, not to forget, in 1998, they, uh, they purchased the ARDC's land at Bathurst, which included the pit building and paddock area and the infrastructure, which is... Um, quite a big commitment given at the time the ARDC was in some financial um, issues not only owing to obviously the losses from the 97 Bathurst 1000 but also they're in the process of moving from Emmeroo to Eastern Creek and ultimately Emmeroo Park was sold as well but so I guess that's quite a big commitment Channel 7 was still putting in but also like you like you said Daniel I think they treated it like situation normal. They just telecast Bathurst like they always did and people people would just watch as they always did when they maybe could have gotten away with that if there wasn't the V8 race a couple of weeks later. They, But I, th- I think they needed to educate the audience to a brand new style of racing for the traditional event. And I think, as you said, part of that is they needed to have been able to get the tv rights which that as far as i know they didn't even try to but they need they needed to get the tv rights and cover the super touring championship for all of 1997 to sort of build build um build the fan base and prepare the fan base for the event and they could have they could have got the british train car rights as well and almost you know you'd had a two-hour package of the british and australian um series running year round to obviously build up uh, towards it, but you look at Channel 7 at the time, and I think they were more interested in the AFL was obviously nationally kind of exploding with its broadcasting at the time, which is uh, unfortunate. But yeah, I think that's that's where they could have done more to leverage that investment, you know, for not a lot of money. You probably could have, I mean, a lot of people criticised Channel 7's coverage of the V8s in 96 especially there in the um, southern states. But, I mean, Super Touring could have probably been happy with that deal. Yeah. In, no, in, terms, exactly. of, in terms of, uh, I know Super Touring preferred post-produced coverage, but, I mean, Channel 7 still offered same-night coverage um, in the southern states. And, you know, you've, you you got a bit, bit of a better deal in New South Wales and Queensland and that. But I, I, th- I think it would have been good if Seven had sort of backed, backed it for the whole year rather than just just expected people to watch at Bathurst? Like, although it had the traditional date, there was nothing about it that the Australian road racing fans, there was nothing for it really to compete against the touring cars, like the five-litre touring cars. Like, it was different, yep. different sort of coverage. It was different commentators. It was different cars. It was you know, largely different drivers. I think it would have been better off doing sort of what the 12 hour is where it's a different time of year. It's different, you know, it's different enough and and separated enough 
from the 1000 that it, it can stand on its own feet and be successful. But the two leader race was trying to be the Bathurst 1000. And, and that could take years to like get the average motorsport fan in Australia to sort of accept it and take it on board. It's just, it's never going to work. Australia yeah. has never, ever, ever been a fan of two litre front wheel cars. Especially once the, 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 the V8s got their own Bathurst event over the line a couple of weeks well, later. That's, I mean, that's where I think the Bathurst Regional Council sold, sold out Channel 7. And, and the AIDC, to be, to be fair. But um, obviously, they're all partners in this event. And then uh, um, the Regional Council basically approves a clone to undermine them. So I think that that was a turning point because you wouldn't have those comparisons. Well, sorry, you wouldn't have those fresh comparisons um, if it was the only 1,000 Bathurst event was these events. But yeah, yeah, having two weeks, two weeks later. Hold it in March. And then suddenly, I think it would stand on its own two feet and be a ton more successful, get a lot more interest and take the sort of competitive aspect out of it from it competing against, you know, what is the biggest race of the year, which is the five-litre touring cars. I guess that would have... If that five-litre touring car race didn't exist, then... Then we, then I mean, then it it would have had more of a chance, and I I wondered to your point, Luke. Then if that's potentially what took the wind out of Channel Seven sales, if rather than having their own event, all of a sudden they had, you know, a clone that they were competing against, and they didn't seem to have the um the energy to, as I said, educate the fan base throughout the year, mm-hmm. or get behind a new formula and. I know we want to keep the politics out of it, but um, for this podcast, but they they needed to go to war, so to speak, and say that we're 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 going to back these super tourists year round. We're not just going to sit back and then let you all turn up at Bathurst in October and then we'll give you some attention. Yeah. The, the, no. the, the, with with the council though, I um I can have sympathy for the Bathurst council in that they're yes they 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 did do a deal with the other side for the V8 race, but I guess. If you're a council, you're you're there to service the community, and in the council's mind, the community would benefit from a second race, and especially given it was the V8s that were going to be the second race. I guess in their mind, they have to. That was more business for the community. Yeah, my. I guess I can I just, have sympathy for him in that regard. Yeah, and maybe it was too soon. I just um, I look at the organisation. That was Vesco at the time, then lobbying the council to run an exact replica of this race two weeks after the original one. That yeah. that that's where I kind of go. Yep, you may have a you know um, end of the same distance com- as well. Thousand. That's what I mean. Distance. That's what I mean. It, it it basically was borrowing off someone else's event. And they they purposely clouded that judgment, and that's where I'm uncomfortable about it, because when the shoe was on the other foot, basically they cried foul, and ultimately were successful, and that's how we wound up with the 500k race in '99. But uh, yeah, so that's where I was like, the council could have, I think, achieved that through a different means. So, yeah. it has to be said though, I guess not only do you, do we need to ask did Channel Seven do enough. 
Super Touring as a whole didn't help itself in terms of when the race was originally announced, we heard, um, you know, all these cars could possibly come from overseas and there was all this interest. And early on, there were claims that, um, I mean, there was early talk that uh, GT production cars could have been part of the grid for the 97 races as second class. But early on, um, Toka, UK boss Alan Gow, he um, he said he had a preference for a Super Tour only field in 97 and was saying that they'd have a field of 35 to 40 cars. That just didn't happen. In the end, we only got six cars each year to come out from England. That's, I think that's where um, Channel 7, and I don't know, but you think in terms of economies of scale and bang for your buck, they're paying for all the freight and I think they're going to get 15 cars or whatever and then only to wind up with six. That's, um, yeah, that, that undermines them a little bit too. But I'm, I'm surprised as well, as you said, with the likes of Alan Gow, Terry Morris, people like that, that, yeah, there wasn't more push from that side and actual investment from that side. And the, the excuse used for only six coming in 97 was that the race was announced um, too late for a lot of the overseas team's budget and that a lot more were going to come out for 98. But then for 98, you still had the same the same number of cars in six, but um, two of them were, were privateer entries. Yeah, so the Rob Gravett Honda and, um, yeah, the 10 Dynamics. If they did it at a different time of year, again, like another parallel to the 12 hours, part of the reason they run... 12 hour so early in the year because it's the best time for teams to come over from overseas that or ironically um super to super touring 1000 would have probably run a bit better in november because uh one of the problems with the um early october date was that it always clashed with the final round of the uh the german stw cup which um had a lot of interest and a lot of a lot of good drivers. That's why Frank Beeler couldn't come back in 1998 because he um, he did the German Super Touring Series in 98 and that final round clashed with Bathurst. Yeah, see, that, that's where you think they could have been smarter. Change the day and change it from a Bathurst 1000 to Super Touring six-hour and suddenly it's a very different... Uh, sounding race, I think it would, would have been um, maybe from uh, definitely from the public's view, maybe more widely accepted. Problem, the only problem with that is that undermines then everything that the organisers were trying to say that theirs was the traditional race I that know. had been around. But they were just yeah. setting themselves up to fail in hindsight, yeah. weren't they? The other the other thing with that is the the Australian Super Touring Championship didn't even gain momentum off the off the back of the Bathurst announcement in that, you know, we touched on, you know, Channel 7 could have done more with the 97 series perhaps, but even in general, the Australian Super Touring Championship entries were quite poor during 97. Some rounds only got 13 cars. Yeah, but look at look at the two rounds after the 1000, Amaru and Lakeside, was it? Yeah, Lakeside, Amaru, yeah. Yeah, I think they swelled to early 20s, mid-20s, maybe entries. Yep. So I think I think it was almost people got their Bathurst program ready and then with all their resources and things they had left over, funneled in. But you're right, then for round one, 1998, 
they disappeared again. Yeah, and we'd also lost BMW by then. BMW pulled out at the end of 97 off the back of a Bathurst win. And there was talk of um, some sort of a high-profile private team running those cars with um, Jeff Brabham and Murphy mentioned as drivers, but that privateer sort of effort came to nothing for 98. And there was rumours of a Honda works team in the 98 Australian Super Touring Championship, but that came to nothing. So you'd net lost local cars heading into 98. The sort of the, the series hadn't kicked on from having Bathurst. Yeah, some missed opportunities there. Yeah, we just, just needed those um, you know, manufacturers or even Holden, you know, obviously bring forward their support of a Vectra um, as well. So, yeah, I think a lot of missed opportunities that if a couple had just fallen their way, we might have been in a different situation. Biggest problem that killed it as a whole was just the cost of running the cars. Ridiculous. So I th- and I think I think I think Holden well Holden were willing to back the Vectra for the ninety eight one thousand and I think they probably would have been open if the cost was right to a Vectra super touring program, but it was just well, it was probably a similar sort of price to what they were putting into V eights at the time, but the obviously you can only do one or the other at those sort of prices i think the well it's easy for me to say because you're right the cost um may have been prohibitive but you think of the arrangement um volvo dealer team had here in terms of using twr in the uk for a lot of their engine prep obviously supply of year old cars and things like that you would have hoped that holden and triple eight it's funny where things wind up 20 odd years later but, uh, yeah, there was, I guess, potential to do a similar deal. The mention of Volvo, that was one issue I always had with the 98 race in that, obviously, the two TWR Volvos from England came out to do the 98 Bathurst, but that that replaced the Australian Volvo that Jim Richards had driven all year. Yes, yeah. We'd already lost BMW from the previous year in terms of a, lo- a good local effort. Um, Gary Rogers Motorsport didn't have a super touring team in 1998. And heading into Bathurst, the, the only sort of local contenders were the two works, Audis and Cameron McLean's private BMW. And even then, Cameron McLean seemed to, which is no, no problem, you know, he, he did his best to finish, but he seemed to be going for the finish in 98, not to, he didn't seem to want to get amongst the, the works cars too much. Yeah, they took a conservative approach, didn't they? And no disrespect to Tony Scott, but it would have been good if they put a Paul Morris or a Craig Baird or, uh, you know. Well, Jeff David. Brabham. Jeff Brabham didn't, wasn't doing much in 98. Yeah. What was David like, Brabham doing as well? Yeah. Johnny Shikotto. Uh, well, Johnny Shikotto was uh, that weekend in 98. He was winning the um, final round of the German Super Touring Championship. Okay. Well, and w- winning the championships. <laughs> That's why, that I guess that was why Schnitzer couldn't come because they were competing in that championship yeah. too. Yeah. We fixed it. We have now created a, a like, another world where super tourer and supercars live on successfully and happily and we all get to watch more racing we fixed it well yeah we we have i guess one thing was there, there was never a lack of linking of manufacturers to an australian super touring program nissan were rumored at times holden as we said honda got close in 98 alan jones was linked to running dodge stratuses at one point they just never seemed to quite get over the line 
and I guess it, I guess it, same with there was a lot of high-profile privateer programs linked at times, and either just the the commercial interest just wasn't there. There, there was just something missing that ended up affecting not only the race but the championship. Yeah, and, they, and you saw how quickly it came undone too. I think that was um, you know, shown the reliance on the European um, you know cars because no cars were produced here; they were all imported. And yeah, so I think when once the momentum um, stopped, and obviously Channel Seven's investment stopped, yeah, things wrapped up pretty quickly. Uh, with with the '98 race, what did you think of the extra classes added to the event, rather than just being a Super Tour only event? I didn't mind it. Like quite a quite a big fan of class racing. Oh, I loved um, it actually. Yeah, just obviously ultimately what it did to the format, I guess. In terms of the race, caught, caught part, playing a part in the accident or. No, no. Well, Jim, I, I just wonder if that was sowed the seeds for um, future touring and Bathurst tours 12 months later. Could have. I, I guess it also showed that they couldn't get together a full grid of super tourers in their mind because we only had 28. We had 27 starting 97, and of the 40-odd starters for 98, 28 of them were super tourers. Yeah, and I think as soon as you um, – yeah, as soon as we turned – turned off the European tap in terms of freighting cars over. That's that obviously um that and obviously more. Yeah, and put the pressure on. But yeah, looking at the ninety eighth race, nah, I I've no concerns about um that you know, any part of slow cars having an accident because um for the most part it was pretty clean. And um yeah, I think having some different classes it took it, it's not made, you know, those Obviously the Group A years, but also even that '93 and '94 race with the two-liter um, cars running with the five-liter cars um, yeah. kind of took me a little bit back to to those events. What did you think of the um, class race in '98, Brock? Well, I love class racing, Luke, as you know. So um, I'm always a fan of multi-class racing. I love slow cars. I love the fast cars. I love the traffic. And although it can detract from the race in some ways, uh, anything that's a multi-class race or has that aspect to it, I am a huge fan. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was great. Um, a, a lot of the drivers, the front-running super touring drivers, were were complaining about um, the slower cars. But I did notice pre-race, Peter Brock was very, very adamant to saying just, just it's the same for everyone. Just and you could tell, you could tell he, he he quite loved the idea of it. He was very pro. Just forget about it and just get on, drive what's in front of you, and um, and basically stop complaining. And although sort of the a lapped car did stop Matt Neal um, from having one last crack at Rydell on the last lap of '98, I don't think he was going to get there anyway. No, and over six hours of running, which, I mean, there's ebbs and flows. It's unfortunate, but uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that decided the race. And actually, on Peter Brock, it's a shame he didn't, given what happened in years later um, with all his comebacks, it's a shame Brock didn't um, didn't do the 98 race because he seemed a bit a bit lost in the broadcast, I thought. I quite enjoyed the Brock reports that flicked up um, going to and coming back from ads. Oh, they were good, but uh, he just seemed a bit, I don't, I, don't, not, I don't know if lost interest is the right point, but I, I, I don't know. There was just... You well, know, I think it was his, his in, first, first year in retirement. So I think yeah. a bit of adjusting. I like his banter with Brad Jones. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was always entertaining. But, yeah, uh, I I think given he was 
he, he um, well, we'll get to it in a bit. He talked about making a comeback for the 99 Bathurst 1000 to drive with James in a junior tourer. But, um, and obviously he had subsequent comebacks after that. <laughs> he, he may as well have just raced the 98 race. Yeah. Well, it's funny though, and obviously it's a different time, but um, obviously when he retired, he retired full stop. There was no, because, you know, there's no reason why he couldn't have jumped in you know, the Triple Eight Vectra and just been a co driver or jumped yeah. in with uh, Brad and gone around her an Audi or something. So, yeah, it's, it's funny how different time. Um, the idea of just being a uh, co-driver didn't um, didn't jump up. But m- moving into 99, um, that was probably the time when we started seeing a bit of positive effect from the um, Super Tourers being involved in Bathurst in that Volvo upped their commitment for the 99 Australian Super Touring Championship to, to two factory cars. We had Paul Morris come back and run a private BMW. Patrick Watts came over and did the early rounds in a Peugeot from England. Uh, Jamie Wall was trying to put together a deal. He ended up only doing the first round, but he he had um, plans to bring a bring an English Nissan over. Paul um, Peter Hills also he'd um, he'd freshly updated his Mondeos and this seemed to and actually for '99 also the Super Touring Championship had actually moved to Channel Seven, which gave it some um, some synergy with with the 1000. But at the same time, pretty much immediately after the 98 race, there were questions being raised to Seven's commitment citing $5 million losses. And then Seven in early 1999, as we mentioned earlier, they said they weren't going to pay to import British touring cars to come over for the race. Around this time, management company Advantage International, who for many years had had a relationship with Peter Brock, they were brought in to help promote the Bathurst 1000 for 1999 and alleviate some of the dollars that Seven were losing. And with with Advantage coming in, their early plan for 1999 was, for the Bathurst 1000, was to keep the Super Tourers, but for the second class in the race to be the Junior Tourers, which is another story in itself, but they, Junior Tourers were basically born out of Oscars and they would go through many name changes which we don't need to get into now but at the at the time they then that they had their name changed from junior tourers around the time of the Bathurst announcement to new millennium Oscars. problem was cams wasn't on board with this and refused to issue a permit for the Bathurst 1000 if these junior tourers or new millennium Oscars were in the grid with the super tourers an yeah. unusual move by cams well yes Yes, worth remembering at the time they were they had a share in um, Avesco as well. Makes it sick, doesn't it? Then, uh, then the organisers of um, the Bathurst 1000 tried to get a permit through Bob Jane's Oscar Company, but the Bathurst City Council refused to accept this and said they would only let cam-sanctioned events take place on the track. So that there effectively ended not only the two-year history of the Super Touring Bathurst 1000, but it basically ended the traditional long weekend Bathurst 1000 um, because Advantage and Channel 7 then came up with an idea for a Bathurst festival that would feature a 300-kilometre race for the new Millennium Oscars and a 500-kilometre race for Super Tourers. It's worth noting by the time the 300-kilometre race came around at the Bathurst festival, the 
junior tourers that became new millennium Oz cars had by then become Bathurst tourers. But uh, what did we all think of that? 1999, just very sad. Just um, very, um, very, uh, you know, riveting and uh, uh, just an awesome event that nobody watched. It was just a sad weekend, I thought, from watching it. It, it, it didn't have the fizz of the previous years. They had a plan, and once Cam's nicked it, then that was that. They, it was like they came up with this thrown-together backup idea, which I don't think anyone thought would work. Yeah, 1999, like, just to rub salt in the wound, I guess, um, is, you know, I mean, their yeah, supercars is really taking off, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, I mean, once once they decided to go, move away from the 1,000-kilometre format, I mean, the, 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 the war was lost then. I was quite strongly on the traditional side and considered the Super Touring race to be part of the 1,000 history and the V8 race not. But once once that once they moved to the the 500 kilometer race for Super Tours, I, I didn't consider that part of the long weekend history. I thought that was just tr- trying too hard to keep it going. By then, it did in a way it did provide a nice um, well not a nice but it did close the book on the history of the long weekend Bathurst Enduro because in 2000 there was no no way the the Bathurst Enduro could have been held on that weekend as that was the closing ceremony for the Sydney Olympics. So there was going to be a break in tradition in 2000 anyway, no matter which way you looked at it. All right, so he, here's a hypothetical for you based off the back of that. If if the separate V8 race for 97 had, hadn't been allowed to happen by the council and Super Tourers were the only 1,000 in 1997, where are we by the year 2000? Um, we've got super touring cars running five-litre V8s under the bonnet. <laughs> what about you, Daniel? So I think we're still running, 2000, we're still running a 1,000-kilometre super touring race. It's still, I think it's still like 97, kind of split between the five-litre and the two-litre categories, but with the impending demise of uh, super touring as a formula it would probably dovetail into obviously where we ended up five years onwards yeah. whatever just because super production wasn't going to get it wasn't going to get picked up here and, and obviously i can't see australia adopting those british touring car rules that they picked up in 2002 so you, you think vo2 because could have survived for a few years without running a bathurst race definitely Yes, but but they wouldn't have had the momentum that they had because I think by them not racing there, they do lose some of their uh, you know momentum and some of their supporters. So um so yeah, I do think they would have survived. It just wouldn't have been as uh, as big. Yeah, that that, cause that that's the critical thing. The critical thing that swayed the success of the Super Touring race was the V8 race being allowed to happen. I I think. If the V8 race wasn't green-lighted, I actually think it ends up being a V8 race on the long weekend in 97, Ooh. I think. Talk, talk me through that. I think if a V8, if a race at Bathurst was important enough for V8 supercars that they put together their own event, then something happens, so money, money changes hands in some way, shape or form that 
the V8 race is shown on that there's a uh, the the now the the traditional Bathurst 1000 continues like run by ARDC televised by Channel 7 but it's for V8 supercars and something gets worked out where oh. maybe the may, maybe money changes Channel 10 get compensated and so, something something happens I think I think it was that important worst comes oh. to worst there, there's a compromise reached by 2000 anyway. Yeah, by, oh. I think by 2000, you're right. But I just think with the likes of the Black Weagle, Alan Gow, Channel 7, like I think too much water had gone under the bridge to come together for 97. As an aside, it would have been very interesting to see what would have happened in those couple of years. Like I think, as you both say, we, we wind up in the same spot pretty much. But a super touring... 1000 that isn't followed up by a V8 1000 a couple of weeks later could have been a wonderful international event and it, yeah and it, and it would have would have been interesting to see how it, maybe it would have mirrored what happened with those early indianapolis 500s during the irl cart war yeah it's probably not a bad analogy yeah that's i just would have loved to have seen that just a pity um as we said earlier pity the uh, local council caved yeah but um so what what would be some of our final thoughts on the Super Touring 1000s? Well, I've had a lovely time reliving both events. I've even snuck in a bit of the 99 um, events because whilst I did have that unfortunate um, sombre mood over it, seeing those cars in the rain uh, until the Volvo's tyres went off um, was, I found it pretty entertaining. Just wish there were two Audis out there. Um, but yeah, I just think overall it was sensational and just so much untapped potential in there. Um, I think they were cool cars, but it just, it's just not the right thing for Australia and what, uh, we tend to, to, uh, support, um, motor racing wise, but cool cars, Glad it happened. Um, good to get the international side of it out here. I really enjoy that. And, um, yeah, really cool to look back on it. Yeah, I guess ultimately it it didn't have a long-term future as a super touring event, whether in, an, in another alternate universe, maybe they maybe they switch it to pro car or something at some point. But um, if, if the event had managed to get enough, get enough of a following in those two years, but um, in terms of super touring... I think it's a shame that the race has been largely forgotten about, except by except by enthusiasts and um, you know, and even the National Motor Racing Museum still showcases a couple of super tours there. But it's like Australian motorsports sort of tucked these events away as sort of skeletons in the closet, and um, you know they only sort of get referenced when, or it got mentioned a bit when um, Volvo came into V8 supercars in the the mid 2010s um but other than that they 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 just seem too hard to explain um especially in a motorsport industry where the media only wants to talk about the good things and these events i think a lot of the media just find them too hard to explain or um which i think is a shame because they were they were two awesome car races uh the 97 event was just a, a great endurance race where 
where we had, we had the Renault take off and the BMWs and the Audis sort of held back and they ended up being able to get to the front of the field when the um when the hair broke down. 98, as we said, you had Richards and Richards and a um, Nissan versus Volvo battle all race and in many ways sort of the 98 race summed up um, summed up the Bathurst 1000 as a whole, the 36 years of the event. And um, ah, that's it. I just thought they were great races and I thoroughly enjoyed them as a 14 and 15 year old and I loved going back and watching them in preparation for the podcast and I think they're they're both very worthy Bathurst events in the in the history of the race. Whether whether you think the history of the race ended in 1998 or whether you think the history of the race continues today. Well said. That's where we'll uh, wind up our chat on the 1997 and 98 Super Touring Bathurst 1000s. Please jump onto our Facebook and Instagram pages to share any memories or share any comments you have about the two events. Thanks to Daniel and Brock for joining me to talk about these great races. Thank you to Breakthrough Health and Wellness for their support and make sure to visit their Facebook and Instagram page as well as go to Breakthrough's website, mybreakthrough.com.au. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another episode very soon. <laughs>